Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 5 I suggested last week we look closely at the chorus because the chorus really is us, it's the church, it's humanity, it's the voice of a, of a confused and bewildered uh, life form trying to become conscious and so on. And the chorus wavers. I think we have to understand that this play is valuable to us, not because it tells us how things ought to be, but because it tells us how things are. I said last week that the chorus speaks the language of defilement. And the language of defilement, if, if uh, Paul Ricoeur is right in his analysis, is the most primitive experience of, of what's wrong. So primitive that Ricoeur says you cannot, it cannot be philosophically analyzed. It's, it, it goes right into, uh, right into the back brain, see, right into the brain stem, this fear of defilement, and gives rise to the reign of terror. And the fear of defilement is the fear, fundamentally, of contamination by the evil or pollution or disease. And Ricoeur, in his analysis, says at the, at the most elevated experience of that same emotion, you have the experience of the saint, which is not the fear of defilement, but the fear that there may not be enough love in the situation, that one may be incapable of the, of the level of love required to redeem the situation. So it's an opposite fear, but Ricoeur says it stems from the same context, the sense that something profoundly is wrong. So that the fear of defilement is the fear of contamination, and the fear that, they, that one may not be able to sufficiently love is the fear of alienation. One is the fear of contact, and the other is the fear of the loss of contact. Well, I want, I want to go through that again because the chorus now, in a sense just before the actual victimization of Thomas, reaches that moment of clarity that sometimes is recorded in the physical death of a human being, that sort of moment on the deathbed when suddenly everything clears and some deep insight into the mystery seems to be on the face of the dying person. Well, and something like that seems to be happening to the Chorus. They are still terrified, shocked, and outraged by what they're forced to witness, but their feeling about the situation seems to have shifted from the more primitive to the more refined version of what uh, Ricoeur described. So they say, Numb the hand and dry the eyelids, still the horror, but more horror than when tearing in the belly. She lines down. The agents of hell disappear. The human, they shrink and dissolve into dust on the wind, forgotten, unmemorable. Only is here the white flat face of death, God's silent servant. And behind the face of death, the judgment, and behind the judgment, the void, more horrid than active shapes of hell, emptiness, absence, separation from God. The horror of the effortless journey to the empty land, which is no land, only emptiness, absence, the void, where those who were men can no longer Turn the mind to distraction, delusion, escape into dream, pretense, where the soul is no longer deceived, for there are no objects, no tones, no colors, no forms to distract, to divert the soul from seeing itself, foully united forever, nothing with nothing. Not what we call death, but what beyond death is not death. We fear, we fear. Well, what I'd suggest is this is the kind of language of those who have stumbled on to that greater fear, the fear that there may not be enough love in the situation, the fear that we may finally be incapable of the, of the degree of love that is demanded by the situation.
and that the world may, in fact, end in ice. The chorus now will vacillate, migrate between these emotions. The chorus is still caught up in the, in the emotional experience of what is going on. And in the final analysis, we will see the chorus as representative of ourselves. And that is to say, those who are somehow caught in between an extrication from the sacrificial cult and a complicity with it. The priest's response to the crisis, you see the chorus's response here, visceral response is to recognize that this is a question where we may be sliding into a loveless universe. The priest's response is to mark off the church's territory from that historical crisis outside the gates. Bar the door, bar the door, the door is barred, we are safe, we are safe. They dare not break in, they cannot break in. They have not the force, we are safe, we are safe. Fortress Christianity, the bastion church, to turn inward and seal itself off from that terrible thing out there. And Thomas says, unbar the door, throw open the door. I will not have the house of prayer, the church of Christ, the sanctuary, turned into a fortress. The church shall protect her own in her own way, not as oak and stone, stone and oak decay, give no stay. The church shall endure. The church shall be open, open to our, even to our enemies, open the door. So the church is not a fortress, but the church is something that endures in the midst of the historical crisis not in isolation from it. And the priests argue that those men beating on the door are not really men at all anymore. They are beasts. And that we cannot treat them as humans. We must recognize them as beasts. And Thomas says, you argue by results, as this world does, to settle if an act is good or bad. You defer to the fact for every life and every act, consequence of good and evil can be shown. And, as in time, results of many deeds are blended, so good and evil in the end become confounded. You argue from results. You ask, will it work? I always have to remind myself that Jesus never said it would work. Raising that question is, is the beginning of a, of a tangent away from the mystery of the gospel. And so Thomas says, you don't argue on the basis of what the results will be or whether it will work, because whatever is done will produce both good and evil. And so it will all be confounded in the end. And so he says, unbar the door, unbar the door. We are not here to triumph by fighting, by stratagem, or by resistance. Not to fight with beasts, plural, as men, we have fought the beast, singular, and have conquered. Now that's in keeping with this understanding in the New Testament of powers and principalities. The powers and principalities represent the beast in the apocalyptic sense, the, uh, the beast. And the powers and principalities are never flesh and blood. So one feels the outrage towards what is being done through the human agents by the powers and principality, but always forgiveness for the human beings themselves. It's a very delicate uh, experience, but that's what both the New Testament and this text is saying. We are not here to fight with beasts as men. We have fought the beast and have conquered. And that is true because the passion story, the gospels, and the Christian tradition is involved in the in the overthrowing of the sacrificial cult and all of its mystification. And the crucifixion is the conquering of that, the exposing the consciousness of that whole cultic apparatus. And he says, we have only to conquer now by suffering. This is the easier victory. Now is the triumph of the cross. Open the door. And that's in keeping again with Milton's notion and paradise regained that the, the real crisis you see is in is in turning away the tempters that's the real drama and once they have been turned away then the rest is 
Uh, it takes enormous courage, but it is not as as likely uh, to cause us to go astray as the temptations themselves. The knights burst in with a kind of drum-beating, tom-tom-like incantation. Where is Becket, the traitor to the king? Where is Becket, the meddling priest? Come down, Daniel, to the lion's den. Come down, Daniel, for the mark of the beast. Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you marked with the mark of the beast? Come down, Daniel, to the lion's den. Come down, Daniel, and join in the feast. Where is Becket, the cheapside brat? Where is Becket, the faithless priest? Come down, Daniel, to the lion's den. Come down, Daniel, and join in the feast. Well, what immediately leaps out in these stanzas is the apocalyptic language, the apocalyptic language of both the Old and the New Testament. The book of Daniel is the chief apocalyptic text in the Old Testament, book of Revelation the chief apocalyptic text in the New Testament, and key phrases from each of them leap out of these lines. So the question is, why the apocalyptic language? What does it mean that apocalyptic language is being used in this context? So I'd like to do a little aside just on that before we go on. The New Testament ends with the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. The implication which I think we need to take from that, Northrop Frye in his, his study of the Bible said, we have yet to realize how absolutely appropriate it is that the Gospel ends with the book of Revelation. It is the summation of everything that is involved in the challenge of the Bible to humanity. And Girard's own analysis underscores that same uh, appreciation of things. The only choice left after the passion story and the gospel rendition of it is the choice between nonviolence and the apocalypse, in the popular sense that, of the term apocalypse, meaning wholesale destruction. The passion story and the gospels are, have seriously compromised the sacrificial cult and its modes of mystification. Any tradition that celebrates every Good Friday, the mob coming together and saying, crucify him, is going to be increasingly immune to those recurring mob situations in history which repeat that motif. The mechanism for terminating social violence is weakened. The sacrificial episode is the way of terminating random social violence. So that once the Gospels and the Passion story have begun to work on, in the cultural environment, the mechanism for terminating social violence is weakened. So random and unofficial social violence is poorly controlled, and official sacrificial violence increasingly provokes as much violence as it silences. And that's because the Gospels immunize us to the mystification which camouflage the cult's violence long before they awaken us to a renunciation of all violence. The result is that the violence sponsored by the sacrificial cult scandalizes us, tricks us into resorting to counter-violence to rid ourselves of the official violence. And so instead of terminating the cycle of violence, the effect of the Gospels has been to weaken the mechanism for ceasing the violence. And so, in a sense, the Gospels let loose a flood of violence. Now, this is a very painful irony. In other words, the official violence that once provided an antidote to random violence, increasingly, thanks to the exposure to the Gospels, actually makes it worse. So, both official and unofficial violence, absent a smooth-functioning sacrificial cult, grows more apocalyptic in the popular sense of the term, as both the official priesthood, say, for instance, the cabinet officer, and the unofficial priesthood, say, for instance, the terrorist, develop tools of mass victimization that approach total destruction in their scope. And to try to justify itself, the cult will have to employ increasingly apocalyptic characterizations of the situation. Apocalyptic, again, in the popular sense of the term and irony upon irony, increasingly the apocalyptic language to which the cult must now resort will alert us to the fact that what is happening is irrational and cultic. 
And the reason I wanted to go into that is because I find it very illuminating that the executioners in this story use apocalyptic language at the moment when it's time to carry out the execution. And I think that says something about how wounded the sacrificial cult is, that it can only hope to rationalize its victimization episode by using language that is the most extreme characterization of what's going on. I want to get to this next chorus, but before we do, uh, Thomas says to the, to the knights who are his, his executioners, he says, I am a priest. Uh, it's a word derived, out, uh, derived from the occultic religion. Uh, the priest is the, is the officiator at a cultic slash magical rite of some kind. The new converts to Christianity could no more imagine a non-sacrificial religion than they could imagine a spherical earth. And so the letter to the Hebrews addresses them using the idiom of the sacrificial cult. And in order to do that, it has to see Jesus as, as the high priest. Well, he obviously was not a Levite. So how are you going to get Jesus into the priesthood? And there was this one little curious story in the canon about this other priestly figure, Melchizedek, uh, who, because of his relationship to Abraham, seemed to have precedence in a way over Abraham. So the author of the Hebrews picks out this and weaves it into a recognition of Jesus as a priest. But the whole point of that whole elaborate and somewhat contorted reasoning is to say, in the end, that the sacrificial priesthood, the sacrificial cult is finished. Jesus was the last sacrifice. There are no others. We do not have to repeat it again and again and again and again. That was the point. So it was, it was using some of the old language in order to move away from it in, in the end, finally. Well, let me just return here to Thomas's language. He says, I'm a priest. A Christian saved by the blood of Christ, ready to suffer with my blood. This is the sign of the church always, the sign of blood, blood for blood, his blood given to buy my life, my blood given to pay for his death, my death for his death. It comes out of the traditional language that the church has found itself using. And so I'm just going to, for the time being, let us sit there. We might come back and reflect on it at the end. Thomas is killed by the, the knights. Now, the chorus, which in the, mo in the moment before the, the actual killing, had reached this, in a sense, this recognition at, at a gut level that what's involved is not defilement, but the possibility that there is insufficient love to reconnect the universe. At the moment of the actual murder, they are plunged back into the primitive terror. And it is all the talk now of defilement, and the most primitive experience of defilement, says Paul Ricoeur in his analysis, is the experience of defilement by blood. So their language is that very strongly. Clear the air, clean the sky, wash the wind, take stone from stone and wash them. The land is foul, the water is foul, our beast and ourselves defiled with blood. A rain of blood has blinded my eyes. Where is England? Where is Kent? Where is Canterbury? Oh, far, 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 far in the past. And I wander in a land of barren boughs. If I break them, they bleed. I wander in a land of dry stones. If I touch them, they bleed. How now can I ever return to the soft, quiet season? Night, stay with us. Sun, stop. Hold, season. Let the day not come. Let the spring not come. Can I look again at the day and its common thing and see them all smeared with blood through a curtain of falling blood? The everything is contaminated by this bloodletting. We did not wish anything to happen. We understood the private catastrophe, the personal loss, the general misery, living and partly living. See, before, the, the fears and anxieties and pains and sufferings of life were all contextualized. 
They were enculturated. We experienced them in terms of their cultural definitions and distinction. Uh, but now the terror has broken free of its cultural definition. Speaking now of how it was before they just had everything shattered for them, they say, the terror by night that ends in daily action, the terror by day that ends in sleep, but the talk in the marketplace, the hand on the broom, the nighttime heaping of the ashes, the fuel laid on the fire at daybreak, these acts marked a limit to our suffering. Every horror had its definition. Every sorrow had a kind of end. How often is it that when we are really and truly troubled, we go to someone of wisdom uh, in the hope that they will define what is happening to us, for us? Somehow give it, not necessarily to make it go away, but to help us put a frame around it and understand it. And she's saying before this event, the culture, that the atmospheric culture provided that service. In life there is not time to grieve long, but this, this is out of life. This is out of time. An instant eternity of evil and wrong. We are soiled by a filth that we cannot clean. United to supernatural vermin. It is not we alone. It is not the house. It is not the city that is defiled, but the world that is wholly foul. Clear the air, clean the sky, wash the wind, take the stone from the stone, take the skin from the arm, take the muscle from the bone, and wash them. Wash the stone, wash the bone, wash the brain, wash the soul, wash them, wash them. So just this panic of pollution and defilement, terror of this defilement is what it means. And we'll have one more chorus, a choral ode to attend to, in which we'll see what comes of it. But in the meantime, there is that panic. And in the midst of that panic comes the voice of reason, the voice of reason, who will now try in soothing tone, put all the pieces back together again. And it's the knights who have killed Thomas. Now they return to the stage, and we understand now why it is that in many of the productions, the knights and the tempters are played by the same actors, because they have one more tempting role, which is that they must tempt us as audience. They must tempt the chorus and the priest as the, as the proximate witnesses and us as the, as the more remote witnesses to this event with the kind of reasoning that will justify what they have done. They represent the voice of Caiaphas in the modern world. But notice this. I don't know what it is in Greek, but Caiaphas simply said, it's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. Really a handful of words. These knights, by rough estimation, speak about 700. Captain Veer in Billy Budd, when he was applying himself to this problem, which is rationalizing to those who were, who were troubled by the situation, what had to happen, using Caiaphas' argument, used a few hundred himself. So, what I'm suggesting is that more and more effort is having to go in to, to sponsoring the Caiaphas opinion because the Gospels have had their effect. And increasingly we feel troubled by these episodes. So here come the voices of Caiaphas, Captain Veer, etc. to justify what has happened. And I'll read uh, some of these at, uh, in some length anyway, just to give a feel for what they're doing. We beg you to give us your attention for a few moments. We know that you may be disposed to judge unfavorably of our action. You are Englishmen, and therefore you believe in fair play. And when you see one man being set upon by four, then your sympathies are all with the underdog. I respect such feelings. I share them. And nevertheless, I appeal to your sense of honor. You are Englishmen and therefore will not judge anybody without hearing both sides of the case. That is in accordance with our long-established principle of trial by jury. Now this is the spokesman for the lynch mob who just killed the archbishop. The, you see, the failure to recognize the profound contradiction 
involved in these rationalizations. That is one of the marks of them. And he says, I'm not a man of words, but a man of action. So I will just introduce to you uh, others who will be able to lay before you the merits of this extremely complex problem. Now, this is an extremely complex problem, folks. So you must understand that you must submit to the to the priesthood that has that has been attending to this problem. Don't register your your visceral response to it, but uh, but listen to this argument. Before we turn to Baron William de Tracy, who's the first one to speak, uh, let me just read to you. I just had this clipping out of the New York Times from about two and a half weeks ago, and it hasn't lost its relevance, so I, here it is. Uh, in the week since the bloody crack, this is from Shanghai. In the week since the bloody crackdown on the democracy movement in Beijing, the Chinese propaganda machinery has been put into full swing, seeking to transform the event into a heroic operation that saved the country from a, quote, counter-revolutionary plot. The bloody massacre described in the foreign press and in foreign radio broadcasts beamed at China never took place, Chinese news reports say. According to the official television stations and newspapers, what actually occurred was a largely peaceful operation vigorously supported by public opinion and aimed at, quote, quelling the turmoil brought about by, quote, a small number of bad elements. The campaign is reminiscent of past efforts in this country to rewrite history. The difference this time is that the rewriting is taking place within days of the historic event itself. Visitors flying into Shanghai in recent days have said that airlines asked passengers to throw all newspapers into a garbage bag before they disembark. Uh, we're just witnessing one more version of it that goes on all the time. Easier to see when it's happening a long way away and we're not caught up in the vortex that, that's uh, surrounded. So anyway, Baron de Tracy, he really has only one thing he wants to say, and that is to make the point that they were perfectly disinterested. We are not getting anything out of this. We have much more to lose than to gain. We are four plain Englishmen who put our country first. We're not going to get anything out of that. We're four plain Englishmen who put our country first. King Henry, God bless him, will have to say for reasons of state that he never meant this to happen. Plausible deniability. And there's going to be an awful row, and at best we shall spend the rest of our lives abroad. What's interesting and I think illuminating in this is this passage. De Tracy says, I dare say that we didn't make a very good impression when we came in just now. The fact is that we knew he had taken on a pretty stiff job. I'll only speak for myself, but I had drunk a good deal. I'm not a drinking man ordinarily, to brace myself up for it. When you come to the point, it does go against the grain to kill an archbishop, especially when you've been brought up in good church tradition. What's important here is that it is the role of the culture to provide the necessary intoxicants that will keep this sacrificial act from being morally repulsive, especially for its executioner. And it has failed in this case to provide sufficient narcosis for those who have to carry out the work. And so they had to provide their own. Just as the combatants in Vietnam had to get hold of some other chemical themselves to do what they were told to do. Now, what that tells us is that the culture's capacity to supply the narcosis necessary is weakening. And then the first night, Reginald Fitzhurst introduces Hugh de Morville, who, he says, has made a special study of statecraft and constitutional law. And now we get a, a character who, uh, and I think the first line uh, gives you a clue to it, he says, I should like first to recur to a point, and this uh, wanting to recur to a point, this is uh, an Oxford-educated debating society intellectual, and uh, he's made a study, and because it's a very sophisticated problem. 
It's a very sophisticated problem. And so he's now going to bring his considerable erudition to bear on it. And so he wants to recur to the first point, which is that uh, you are Englishmen and therefore your sympathies are always, always with the underdog. It is the English spirit of fair play. Well, here's the thing. It isn't the English spirit of fair play. It's the fact that the English environment had been penetrated by the gospel sensibilities. That's what awakens people to a sympathy for the underdog. It doesn't have anything to do with your genetic stock. It has to do with the gospel presence in the cultural environment. And it does awaken us to the underdog. And then he says, I'm not going to appeal to your emotions, but to your reason. So he says, I'll ask you soberly, what were the archbishop's aims and what are King Henry's aims? Now we get something very important to it. The king's aim has been perfectly consistent. During the reign of the late Queen Matilda and the eruption of the unhappy usurper Stephen, the kingdom was very much divided. Now that's all we hear of this, you see, in this play. But notice what we're alerted to. That is to say, the same thing that in the Billy Budd text was represented by the, the French Revolution and the possibility that it might spread. That you have a situation here of great tension and an usurper. And we've already been told in this play about the king's rule, baron's rule, this whole question about what's going on, you see. That there's a crisis of distinction, what Gerard calls the crisis of distinction in English culture. Our kings, during that time, he says, our kings saw that the one thing needful was to restore order, to curb the excessive powers of local government, which were usually exercised for selfish and often for seditious ends, and to reform the legal system. Now, this is very, very important, that restoring order can, at lower levels of disorder, at marginal levels of disorder, can be accomplished without the literal application of sacrificial violence. It can be accomplished by simply showing the flag, so to speak, by simply reinforcing the legal structures that are the uh, representative of the capacity of the culture to sacrifice if it has to. So you can, you can reconvene or at least restore at the surface level order by showing the flag, so to speak, by demonstrating the power of the legal system and the capacity of the legal system to function will calm the waters at a lower level of cultural disorder. But at a higher level of cultural disorder, it will fail to do so, and an actual sacrificial event will have to take place. So he said, what we want to do is restore order. He picked out Beckett, who had shown himself to be a very competent administrator, and uh, made him chancellor, and then wanted to unite the office of chancellor, chancellor and archbishop, but as soon as... And he said, had Beckett concurred in the king's wishes, we should have had an almost ideal state. Now, it is the fantasy of having an almost ideal state that has sponsored the greatest bloodletting in history. That is the fantasy. And it is sooner or later driven by the idea that that will happen as soon as we get rid of this last problem. And Shakespeare's Macbeth is a classic study in that. There's always one more murder that has to take place or one more ethnic group that has to be eliminated are one more bordering nation that has to be conquered before we can be secure. To be thus is nothing, but to be safely thus, says Macbeth. The purpose, in fact, of these knights arguing to the audience is not to convince the audience, because Eliot knows that these, this is an audience of, first of all, it's taking place in, in a cathedral. It's probably an audience of largely of Anglicans. And he realizes that he's not going to convince them but he is going to say things that will make them squirm in their chairs. You remember how the, 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 the three members of the court and Billy Budd kind of twitched in their chairs when the Captain Veer began to speak? Well, Elliot is now trying to get the, the people in the pews at this cathedral to squirm in their chairs as they hear this knight speak. He says, You will agree with me that such interference by an archbishop offends the instincts of a people like ours. So far, I know that I have your approval. I read it in your faces. It is only with the measures we've had to adopt in order to set matters right that you take issue. No one regrets the necessity for violence more than we do. Unhappily, there are times when violence is the only way 
in which social justice can be secured. Of all the phrases that have their roots in the Caiaphas point of view, this one is the one that is most repeated in the modern world. I dare say those two short sentences or something almost identical to them can be found everywhere. It is simply this. No one regrets the necessity for violence more than we do. Unhappily, there are times when violence is the only way in which social justice can be secured. They are, we're so familiar with that reasoning that when we read the phrase necessity for violence, we don't even stop to question it. Unhappily, that's the way it is. And almost nobody questions that. He goes on to say, At another time, you would condemn the archbishop by a vote of parliament, execute him formally as a traitor, and no one would have to bear the burden of being called a murderer. At a later time still, even such temperate measures as these would become uh, unnecessary because, you know, the archbishop and the secretary of state would be golfing partners. But if you have arrived at a just subordination, if now he is speaking from the 12th century to the 20th century. He's on stage in the 12th century, in the sanctuary, in the 12th century, and out there his audience in the pews are in the 20th century. And he is saying, if you have now arrived at a just subordination of the pretensions of the church to the welfare of the state, notice the way in which everything's characterized, pretensions of the church to the welfare of the state, remember that it is we who took the first step. We have been instrumental in bringing about the state of affairs that you approve. The first night says, Morville has given us a great deal to think about. It seems to me that he has said almost the last word for those who have been able to follow his very subtle reason. But if there are any who are still unconvinced, I think that Richard Brito, coming as he does from a family distinguished for its loyalty to the church, will be able to convince them. Richard Brito. And then Richard Brito uh, comes forward to make his observation. He says, what I'd have to say, I would just like to put in the form of a question. Who killed the archbishop? As you have been eyewitnesses to this lamentable scene, you may feel some surprise at my putting it in this way. Uh, but consider the course of events. I'm charmed by the fact that he refers to uh, Thomas as the late archbishop. The body is still, of course, warm. Uh, while the late archbishop was chancellor, etc., etc., uh, he said the archbishop became a monster of egotism. Uh, and his egotism became an undoubted mania. And then he says some things, and I'm going to read what he says and just substitute some other things for the place names involved. I have unimpeachable evidence to the effect that before he left Galilee, he clearly prophesied in the presence of numerous witnesses that he had not long to live and that he would be killed in Jerusalem. He used every means of provocation. From his conduct, step by step, there can be no inference except that he had determined upon a death by martyr. Well, you see the inference there. He speaks, of course, of France and England, but uh, it's the, the parallel is clear. And then he says he could have kept himself from us when we were enraged, but he, as you noticed, demanded that the door be opened while we were still caught up in our fury. And so he says... I think with these facts before you, you will unhesitatingly render a verdict of suicide while of unsound mind. It is the only charitable verdict you can give upon one who was, after all, a great man. Now, in case you think uh, arguments that are as absurd as that are not made, here is a, a speech made by Senator Robert Byrd on the floor of the Senate, April 5th, 1968, the day after Martin Luther King was killed. I regret as much as any senator regrets the tragedy that befell Dr. King, and I feel sorrow for his family. I was shocked, but I was not surprised at what happened because of the tension that existed in Memphis. There is a lesson to be drawn from what happened in Memphis and from what has been happening with increasing intensity throughout the nation in recent years, and that is that mass protests, mass demonstrations, and mass marches and the like, whether labeled as nonviolent or otherwise, can only serve to encourage unrest and disorder and to provoke violence and bloodshed. 
And in the end, those who advocate such methods often become themselves the victims of the forces they themselves have set in motion. This, in a manner, is what happened to Dr. King. He usually spoke of nonviolence, yet violence all too often attended his actions, and at the last, he himself met a violent end. Dr. King must have known that rioting having erupted from the last week's attempted march in Memphis, there was, in its wake, such an atmosphere of tension as to make his presence in that city dangerous to himself and to others. He must have known that the situation was volatile and that passions had become greatly inflamed. Now, before I go on with Senator Byrd's comments, let me quote from a speech that Martin Luther King gave the day before he was assassinated. He said this, Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I won't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned with that now. I just want to do God's will. Day before this afternoon. So back to Senator Burke. Yet I regret he persisted in his course, continued to exhort his following to renew the march next week, and told the cheering audiences that a federal court injunction would be ignored. Mr. President, one cannot preach nonviolence and at the same time advocate defiance of the law, whether it be a court order, a municipal ordinance, or a state or federal statute. For to defy the law is to invite violence, especially in a tense atmosphere involving many hundreds of, and thousands of lives. To invite violence is to endanger one's own life, and one cannot live dangerously always. Paul said in his epistle to the Romans, Let every soul be subject unto the higher power. Now, Paul did say that in the letter to Romans, but Paul wrote most of his letters from prison for ignoring certain procedures, and was publicly flogged, and so on. Thus we are exhorted to obey the law and to respect authority, Mr. President, and those who refuse to do this cause serious risk to themselves and to others. Those who do this cause risk to themselves. If I can, if I can mimic uh, Fitzurse, I would say, if you attend to his very subtle reasoning, you will notice that he is attributing the death of Martin Luther King to Martin Luther King. Right after that, Reginald Fitzurst sums it all up. You see, it seems like he has, he's just making a final comment here, but really, in fact, he's telling us what this exercise in reasoning has been all about. He says, thank you, Brito. I think that there is no more to be said. And I suggest that you now disperse quietly to your home. Please be careful not to loiter in groups at street corners or do nothing that might provoke any public outcry. You see, that's really what it's all about. All of this has been an effort to prevent the murmur that we heard on board the the Bolipotent when, when Billy Budd was hanged, prevent that murmur from turning into something more demonstrative. So the question now is, the real drama at the end of the play is, to what extent will the reasoning process of the Knights be convincing to those on stage, consisting of chorus and priest, and those in the congregation or audience consisting of us? Do we find it convincing or disconcerting, or how do we appraise what they're saying? The first priest says that the church is bereft, alone, desecrated, desolated, and the heathen shall build on the ruins of their world without God. I see it, I see it. So he's, he's experiencing essentially the crucifixion. Uh, but the third priest experiences something of the resurrection, and he says he delivers what I think may, in, in terms of the kind of analysis we've been doing, may be the most important line from the play. Because what the third priest says is addressed to the knights. 
in a sense, the knight's reasoning is addressed to the priest and chorus, and it is, this is what really happened. And it's the third priest who now addresses the knights, and he says, Go, weak, sad men, lost, erring souls, homeless in earth or heaven. In what the third priest says, we have a recognition that the sacrificial cult has been broken and that its only alternative now is to go and find little primitive locations where it can still carry out its sacrificial cult. But that in history, slowly but surely, its grip on the human imagination is being broken by the gospel proclamation. That seems to me the gist of what the third priest is saying. And so he says, speaking again to the knights and all that they represent, find an oasis in the desert sun, go seek alliance with the heathen Saracen to share his filthy rites and try to snatch forgetfulness in his libidinous courts, oblivion in the fountain by the date tree, or sit and bite your nails in Aquitaine. To me, this line is a wonderful thing, because in the historical context of this play, Aquitaine is, in, is at the crossroads of history. It is the turf over which the French and England are fighting. And to me, this line, sit and bite your nails in Aquitaine, is a reference to history. There is some place where you can go, where you can still participate in the sacrificial cult, and that is the historical hotspots. Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Northern Ireland, South Africa, the historical hotspots where the passions are so inflamed that the sacrificial cult is still received hospitably. That's At least that's my experience of this text. But then he says, in the small circle of pain within the skull, you still shall tramp and tread one endless round of thought to justify your action to yourselves, weaving a fiction which unravels as you weave, pacing forever in the hell of make-believe, which never is belief. This is your fate on earth, and we must think no further of you. Now, if all the rest of this play was gibberish, it would be worth the study to arrive at those lines. That is what the Christian proclamation must say to those elements in human history that continue to rely on the sacrificial cult. And now I want to turn to the final chorus. As I said, the chorus represents us not as we ought to be, but as we are. And so we find in the chorus two very distinct reactions to all of this. One sacramental and one sacrificial. Because they represent the facts, and the facts are that the Christian movement has yet to extricate itself sufficiently from the sacrificial mentality. So the first lines are absolutely magnificent, what I call sacramental awareness of the mystery of life and its wonder. We praise thee, O God, for thy glory displayed in all the creatures of the earth. In the snow, in the rain, in the wind, in the storm, in all thy creatures, both the hunters and the hunted. For all things exist only as seen by thee, only as known by thee. All things exist only in thy sight. And thy glory is declared even in that which denies thee. The darkness declares the glory of light. Those who deny thee could not deny if thou didst not exist, and their denial is never complete, for if it were, they would not exist. Remember, Eliot in his prose writing said, it's only a Christian society that could have produced a Voltaire and a Nietzsche. They affirm thee in living. All things affirm thee in living. The bird in the air, both the hawk and the finch, the beast on the earth, both the wolf and the lamb, the worm in the soil and the worm in the belly. Therefore, 
man whom thou hast made to be conscious of thee must consciously praise thee in thought and in word and in deed even with the hand to the broom and the back bent in laying the fire the knee bent in cleaning the hearth we the scrubbers and sweepers of canterbury the back bent under toil the knee bent under sin the hands to the face under fear the head bent under grief even in us the voices of seasons the snuffle of winter the song of spring the drone of summer the voices of beasts and of birds praise thee now that to me is a transcendent hymn to the mystery of life the sacramental vision of of the relationships uh, of life but then in the next lines we get sacrificial talk now before we go to them i want to lay the groundwork for them a little bit this is a, something that we haven't dealt with yet but but this play is going to help us begin to deal with it let me quote Girard. there are two stages in myths for Girard, myth is the attempt to camouflage the sacrificial act and he says there are two stages in myth, but interpreters have failed to distinguish them. The first is the act of accusing a scapegoat who is not yet sacred, to whom all evil characteristics adhere. Then comes the second stage, when he is made sacred by the community's reconciliation. Let me break from Gerard for a second and explore that. The word sacred is a problem because it's it's part of the whole business of sacred and profane. And the sacred and profane world is the world sponsored by the sacrificial cult. But if there is a place to apply the word sacred, it would be to life. So we can use it with some reservation about life generally. The sacrificial episode is for the community an awesome spectacle. So the purpose of myth is to block moral revulsion at the sacrificial act and to enhance the awe of that act because the awe is now no longer weighed down by moral aversion and so the awe at what is happening to use an Eliot phrase soars sunward there is a catharsis in the gathered community at the moment of the sacrificial victimization all of the petty and superficial conflicts between and among the members of that community are dissolved in that catharsis. There is an experience in the same way that in an ordinary way we may have little family squabbles, but then if we get a phone call and find out that the member of family is seriously in harm's way, then all of that little stuff dissolves. So it's a kind of shock, that catharsis is a shock that dissolves all of the petty squabbles that have haunted the social order. And with those gone, suddenly we feel connected to each other. It feels like something holy has happened. All of a sudden now we realize our relationship. All of that stuff that has kept us from feeling that has been dissolved in the catharsis of the sacrificial event. Our experience is that something holy has just happened. That there's been a kind of epiphany. That the gods approve what has just happened. And then... It's just one step until, in the most primitive situation, we realize that the one who died was Dionysus. That's the mythologized discovery. Because of the, of the absolute social blessings that came, in the catharsis, all of our petty squabbles disappeared. We recognized our connection with one another. It feels like a divine epiphany. And in retrospect, in the most primitive setting, the conclusion drawn is that the victim was the God. Now you will recognize a parallel in the Christian proclamation, which parallel presents us both with the decoding power of the Christian proclamation and with the possible slipping back into sacrificial mentality. So the, part of the myth is the sacralizing of the victim after the event. Now, go back to Girard. He says, the second of the two mythological transformations is obviously the most fragile since it is almost it has almost entirely disappeared in the modern setting we don't turn our victims into gods anymore not entirely disappeared he says the faint traces of the sacred still clinging to historical victims however bear too close a resemblance to the vanished forms of the sacred for them to have evolved from an independent mechanism 
for example, we do celebrate Martin Luther King Day. That's our way of commemorating his life and what happened, you see, and it's appropriate. But Gerard says that's a modern version of an ancient process, mythologizing process, which is that the victim was the God. In retrospect, so, so blessed is this community after that victimization that we come to realize that that was Dionysus on the altar after all. What's that have to do with historical Christianity? That's the $64 question. Here's what the chorus says. Right after this beautiful sacramental hymn, they say this. We thank thee, and they're thanking God now. We thank thee for thy mercies of blood, for thy redemption by blood, for blood, for the blood of thy martyrs and saints shall enrich the earth, shall create the holy places. For wherever a saint has dwelt, wherever a martyr has given his blood for the blood of Christ, there is holy ground and the sanctity shall not depart from it. This reintroduces the cultic. That bloodletting was a good thing. God approved it. God wanted it to happen. The church needed it to happen. And because of it, we now have a holy place, a sacred place. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, the hour will come when God will be worshipped neither here nor in Jerusalem, but in the spirit of truth. We're talking about the end of holy places. We're talking about the problem, the, the fact of holy places is entangled with the sacrificial cult. Because a holy place means that other places aren't. A sacred place means that other places are profane. And then the question is, where do you draw the line and how do you draw it? And then you get into that whole absolutely non-sacramental world, that is, the sacrificial world. So they begin to talk about the blessings of blood and the holy places. That's, that is the problem. Now, I want to pursue that for a little bit. So it's easy enough, as history has shown, for the sacrificial language of Christian doctrine to ignore the unmistakable assertion of the New Testament that the cult of sacralizing victimization is finished. When the church fails to fundamentally and unequivocally reject sacrificial religion, the church's response to the sacrificial episode will not be to expose it as an abomination and to proclaim unequivocally the God of love and forgiveness, but to participate at various levels of complicity in the sacrificial cult. One such way of being co-opted by the cult is to allow the church's commemoration of the faith, courage, and dignity of the Christian martyr to become the cult's sacralizing of its victim. So I want to go to the New Testament in closing. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, he's speaking to the religionists. He says, Alas for you who build the tombs of the prophets, the men your ancestors killed. In this way, you both witness what your ancestors did and approve it. They did the killing, you do the building. And it is, and that is why the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some they will slaughter and persecute, so that this generation will have to answer for every prophet's blood that has been shed since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. I tell you, this generation will have to answer for it all. Now note, the issue is the tomb of the prophet. The former generation murdered them, and we build their tomb. We sanctify the holy place. Jesus says it is in the way in which you revere their martyrdom that you strangely re-enter the sacrificial cult. You create cultic shrine in an attempt to admire or reverence their sacrificial death. And in doing that, you re-enter the sacrificial system. And so Jesus goes right to the point of connection. You see, in, in crude historical terms, the point of connection is revenge. The way in which violence goes from generation to generation is revenge. But in subtle religious terms, 
the way it goes from generation to generation is sacralization. We sacralize the tomb of the prophets or the martyrs. And we create another sacred place as opposed to a profane place and we set up a whole cultic apparatus. So Jesus goes right to the tombs and he says, watch what you do here. Because at those tombs, you will set up a religion which will be indistinguishable from its predecessors, even though it prides itself on moral superiority to them. Now, with that in mind, in other words, the tombs are the site of the sacralization process. In the resurrection story, in the Gospel of Luke, I want to do the Gospel of Luke and Gospel of Mark resurrection story. Gospel of Luke, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb to anoint the body, to do the ritual washings. In other words, we're still involved in, in cultic stuff the pure from the impure, all of the kind of things that have to be done. So they're going to the tomb, uh, which is the place you got to watch out for, and they're going to begin to do the holy things that make sure the profane and the sacred are still separate. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Now that is it. We don't sufficiently appreciate the fact that the empty tomb story was nothing but trouble for the first Christian. It is dealt with in New Testament, exclusively dealt with as a problem, not as a not as proof of the resurrection by any means. The fact that the tomb was empty was a source of tremendous anxiety to them. And why was the tomb empty, I will ask you? That is the question. The Gospel of Mark ends on a very troubling note, so troubling that some later redactors amended it and added a little happy ending. The first gospel is Gospel of Mark, and it ended on a very troubling note. And I want to read it to you. Much the same thing. When the Sabbath was over, Mary of Magdala, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices with which to, to go and anoint him. And very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb just as the sun was rising. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked, they could see that the stone, which was very big, had already been rolled back. On entering the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right-hand side, and they were struck with amazement. But he said to them, There is no need for alarm. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Now, nobody knows what's at the, at the source of the empty tomb narrative. But I would suggest to you, my guess is that there was an empty tomb. But I would suggest to you that it doesn't matter. The core experience is this. He is not here. That is the key to it. See? And you can have that experience with or without a corpse. That's the experience. He is not here. Very profound experience at the core of the Christian awakening. Now, okay. So this man in white says he is not here. See the place where they have laid him. But you must go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you to Galilee. It is there you will see him, just as I told you. He will meet you in Galilee. He is not here. He will meet you in Galilee. He will meet you, Mission in 17th Street. You see what I mean? He will meet you in Sonoma. He will meet you in... He is not here. No cultics. Don't don't set up your little cultic operation around the shrine. He is not here. And the women came out and ran away from the tomb because they were frightened out of their wits. And they said nothing to a soul for they were afraid. End of the Gospel of Mark. Terrified, troubled, thrown into a state of confusion because he is not there, 
there is no place anymore. He is set loose from the cultic uh, locale. Now we very dutifully built uh, cathedrals over the spot. But you see the point of it. Watch out for setting aside the holy places. And Jesus warned against it. That's where the cultic thing will be reintroduced. And Christianity begins by the recognition that he is not here. No sacralizing, no cultic sacralization of the victim. And the Christian proclamation which proclaims the divinity of Jesus has to, without backing away from that proclamation, has to distinguish itself from the cultic sacralization of its victim. It needs to resemble that because only in resembling it can it decode the mechanism. But it must at the same time distinguish itself from it. Christianity, I think, made the mistake of thinking that it was a religion. And as soon as it made that mistake, it saw itself in competition with a bunch of other religions. And it lost any sense of what its mission to the world was. And that, has, I think, has hampered it since the beginning. The darkness shall not apprehend it. That's what it says in the prologue of the Gospel of John. Which means both that it shall not understand it and that it shall not crush it. Apprehend meaning both comprehend and see, uh, squelch. It's a beautiful little subtlety there. I guess in letting, leaving Eliot, uh, we should uh, take our hats off to the man who put the great words in the mouth of the third tempter, saying that those who would sponsor the cultic operation will now have to go and seek alliance with the heathen Saracen to share his filthy rights and try to snatch forgetfulness in his libidinous courts. But that history ultimately belongs to the Christian proclamation. That's a very bold and wonderful thing. This is the end of Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral by Gil Bailey. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.